Hey, welcome to the Nose Blog. Always question, always explore. This is a late night version that I'm releasing that was surprisingly long. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to do this. I definitely went overboard on this episode. In fact, uh, I probably used this to procrastinate on my other projects, but that's all good. I'm actually working on a few things. Um, coming up including a short film version of of the feature film that i'm producing uh willow so it's a little bit of a, a rush period here and then i'm also trying to get that qualified immunity episode up to you um next week hopefully so well we will see um if not i'll probably be a little bit later in march but in the meantime let's kind of answer something that i feel like a lot of critics of uh, defund the police or abolish the police movement often have, which is, you know, who will replace it? And I, I think that question is stemmed on uh, an assumption of ignorance or, or the idea that if I don't know about it, then it doesn't exist. Um, fortunately for us, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have dedicated their lives to providing humane replacements for the police in times of violence in times of, of need, in times of mental health emergencies. And this, is, this incorporates a really, a really uh, important word that I, I want y'all to, um, to, to learn here today, if you haven't already. It's called ATIs, Alternatives to Incarceration. And, uh, and there's another one, too, another phrase I'd like to put in your ear. Uh, violence interrupters. Now, Chicago has a deep history, a deep history of, uh, of people who are former and current uh, gang-affiliated people whose job and whose mission it is to, to go into different uh, disputes and diffuse the situation before it, it uh, escalates to violence. Um, and that practice is not just in Chicago. It's across the nation. And uh, I was privileged enough to... Um, to be a part of uh, the project that that followed uh, a couple of these groups, one of them in particular, Man Up, which was founded by an activist by the name of A.T. Mitchell. Uh, he not only was talking to them, um, I mean, this, this, this entire thing is, is formed because of the death of a child in East New York, um, and they wanted to find a way to kind of prevent that from happening. And Elliot and I uh, joined them uh, during one of their meetings when they're uh, strategizing but also bringing to the attention of other community members how police are monitoring their youth in a, in a more invasive way, which all ties into the idea of gang database. Uh, the police were able to get these warrants to, to monitor and pretty much stalk and, uh, and convict, ultimately, kids uh, and young adults um, for crimes they didn't do, of course, but you know, off of what they post on social media. So it's, it's actually an infringement on your, on your First Amendment rights. Um, and probably, you know, if qualified immunity is, uh, is uh, now banned in New York City, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some lawsuits that are coming from that. But in any case, um, this episode is especially uh, pertinent because it explains the history of ATIs. It uh, goes into different examples that we see in New York of ATIs and, uh, and violence interrupters and the, the presence they play. And when people use the critique 
of um, of saying that police have to be there or else the people with guns will uh, will get you. <laughs> uh, I think they're 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 not understanding violence and the pathology of violence in a way that people who have been raised in it or have been uh, like who have to navigate environments of violence have and a big issue or a big impetus on that is the idea of cycles of violence of retaliation um, uh, or of anger or of just people having disagreements and arguments and not having them be diffused you know if we were to look at gangsters or people you know who commit violent crimes as just some other you know sick marginalized strange you know other people then we can't understand how to ultimately cure it. We're just going to say, get more people who are violent and they can handle it. And in fact, those people end up turning on us. That's what happened with the black community in the 1990s. We thought that more police would prevent violence happening in our communities. And it didn't. It just increased it. So what was the solution? The solution was having people who understood the pathology up close, who had then changed their lives. People like uh, King Tone, Antonio Fernandez, very notable, former head of the, the Latin Kings, and he's a very notable violence interrupter. I say all that to say, um, yeah, just uh, take a listen to this episode. It's, it's very informative, and it tells a lot about how we can, how we can envision the future um, with less police on the ground. We don't need uh, a lot of people coming in to throw away the lives of, of, of young men and women and people uh, um, at the end of the ooh, at the end of a, of a violent act, we want to stop it before it becomes a violent act. And um, violence interrupters and, and ATIs are, are are incredible tools that have been uh, created and 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 bolstered and and developed by the community. Um, so it, it does hold an even bigger impact because there's agency there. There's not just uh, an outside invading force with guns coming in to tell you how to live your life or harassing innocent people ultimately um, in order to try to somehow punish the bad. So uh, take a sit back, uh, enjoy, uh, get a little sip of wine, a little um, a little J if you got it. You know, it's legal in New York, so what's up? And um, enjoy this uh, podcast episode that I'll be calling the the replacements, ATIs, and violence interrupters. Down the block and you see your boy, you go, oh, what up, Red? Da, da, da. Yo, Pee Wee ain't get out yet? Nah, ah, I'm about to post a post on him. Hashtag free Pee Wee. You know there's a cop watching that? And now that you know Pee Wee, because Pee Wee's the head crip dude, you in a gang database. That was Victor Dempsey from Man Up. And he's talking about an invasion of privacy and violation of First Amendment rights made possible by NYPD's gang database. Stay tuned. This is the Nose Squad. Always question, always explore. Warning, what you're about to hear is a collage of police propaganda. From local conservative outlets like the New York Post to the NYPD's chief of detectives, Dermot Shea. And it's all part 
of a cycle police departments and unions alike have been using to decrease police accountability for nearly a century. I'll be speaking more on that in the upcoming Qualified Immunity episode. But for now, you've been warned. Let's go. Street gangs take on different forms. They are similar in that they tend to be motivated by greed and a twisted sense of honor. No one needs to live in fear in New York City. No one should have to worry about their child or their elderly mother or father walking down the block at night. After the tragic murder of 15-year-old Bronx teen Junior Gusman Feliz, New York local press helped the NYPD label large swaths of the city as gangland in New York City. Being labeled a gangster doesn't just dehumanize our understanding of the people who live here. It also helps the NYPD circumvent the ban on stop and frisk once more. Hence the nickname Stop and Frisk 2.0. Here's Sister Antoinette Kennedy, an outreach worker at Man Up. She's describing the change happening in Brownsville, a neighborhood in East New York that's been targeted by the gang database. So I live in Brownsville and I'm constantly seeing now on the rag that you got three and four DTs jumping out their cars, just walking up on young boys and searching them. Today, we join Victor Dempsey and Anthony Posada from LES's Community Justice Unit at Man Up for a training session on their FOIL initiative. When we say gang, we think something's going on, right? Now, if you would have listened to the first episode of the series, you would have heard a firsthand account of what it's actually like to be accused of gang affiliation in a courtroom by prosecutors. It isn't pretty, and it isn't fair. Remember what Miss Smith said about her son's trial? I don't have a fight because once he goes to the federal court, my God, he can't even, he doesn't even have the bail the minute they said gang related. They don't want to hear nothing. But not just that. We're talking about crews because it's all started Operation Crew Cut. Yeah, you heard him right. Operation Crew Cut. This was part of a larger push on propaganda from the NYPD. Once the phenomenon of organized crime, gangs as we know it, started to decrease in New York, NYPD started targeting smaller groups of individuals, oftentimes just sports clubs or music groups for just a group of friends. They labeled these as crews. Hence, Operation Crew Cut was NYPD's new effort to pretty much use the same tactics, surveillance, and violations of First Amendment rights and 14th Amendment rights to go after crews instead of gangs. You can hear the chief of detective, Durbin Shea, really try to push this concept in the city hall hearing on NYPD's gang database. Let's tune in. Today, much of what the violent crime we face not only comes from traditional criminal groups, but also from smaller groups, often linked by their neighborhood. We refer to these as crews. Just crews, just motorcycle clubs, just a group. Anybody, 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 exactly. But if you're just standing around on the corner and the cops, say for instance, grab him and you're standing there, they would actually take your name and throw it in that database? So we talk about our youth. How do we empower them? We explain to them, this is what they're doing to you. you know, we explain to them social media, Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, all of that stuff. Now when you leave and you go down the block and you see your boy, you go, oh, what up, Red? Da, 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 da. Yo, Pee Wee ain't get out yet? Nah, I'm about to post a post on him. Hashtag free Pee Wee. You know there's a cop watching that? And now that you know Pee Wee, because Pee Wee's the head crip dude, you in the gang database. 
I hear you guys. I get it. You know, you've never been locked up. But like Anthony said, you don't have to do anything criminal to be put on a gang database, which is going to criminalize you. He's right. You don't have to commit a crime to be on a gang database. You don't even have to be suspected of committing a crime. In fact, during that same city council hearing with Chief Detective Dermot Shea trying to justify the gang database, the briefing paper and committee report of the Governmental Affairs Division, which I was very fortunate to have access to, gave a list of the criteria that NYPD used to classify gang members, and you will be surprised. Let's take a closer look. Anyone can openly admit to being in a gang for whatever reason it is. Maybe it was a stop, maybe it was a cop accident, maybe bragging about it. We don't know. Reliable resource they use is actually school safety. Now we're talking about our high schools, junior high schools, where our kids are. I'm actually going to use a scenario that they use in the hearing. If a police officer gets called to a school for a fight, someone wants to press charges on another young man for assault, possibly. Well, if we're making that arrest, a school safety officer or a teacher basically sets them on the side, hey, this young man's part of such and such a crew. They're saying that they take that into consideration when making that arrest. Now, let's say the case is moving on with the young man, goes to prosecution, they talking to the DA about the case. Oh, so who is this young man? Talk, talk to me about him, right? They want to get bio on or a background and see how heavy that penalty may potentially be. But the most thing they know is he's part of a gang, he's part of a crew. These people don't even know him. They just tell the story and they indict him. Now who we facing with? If he wants to go to trial, he wants to go to trial. You're talking 50 to 100 years. These, these young people are getting hundreds of years off of BS. Everybody's well aware. That's why we're here. What do we do? What, what can I do? What can I do? So there's one little fight that happened in school that was probably over nothing, that probably could have been pulled aside and just talked about. Now they're criminalizing that and they're further pushing it forward. So now this young man that just had a, made a mistake or misjudgment, now he's labeled not only a gang member, but that's holding weight on how they're prosecuting that case. So far, the only way to know if you're in the gang database is when prosecutors present it as evidence against you in court. And by then, it's already too late. The only way to find out if you're placed on a gang database outside of court is through a Freedom of Information Act request. Freedom of Information Law, FOIA for short, provides the public with the right to access certain government records. So, in order to help fight what LAS calls a breach in constitutional rights, in 2018, the Legal Aid Society launched a do-it-yourself campaign for community members, which allows them to submit FOIA requests to NYPD. The main focus of the campaign is to inform and empower New Yorkers on the NYPD's use of a gang database. I want to engage all of you to submit actual FOIA requests, like right now. We'll fill them out, I'll notarize them, take them back to the office, we'll submit them. We will be following up with each and every one of you to let you know what they said, which will more than likely be first the denial, and then we'll follow up with an appeal. Over 300 FOIA requests have been submitted since the start of this program, and all of them, 100%, have been outright denied by the NYPD. Over 98% of the people named in the database have been Black or Latinx New Yorkers, a racial undertone that isn't missed by the LAS. New York. Thank you. to the Prince Joshua Vito Community Center. My first time here. Yes. Beautiful. Most people's first. Uh, we, we're brand, brand, brand. Okay. So. 
This is the Prince Joshua Vito Community Center. It's a newly opened state-of-the-art facility offering a gym, music studio, entertainment space, and computer rooms. The Prince Joshua Vito Center is ran by Man Up and Good Shepherd Services. Community members, including Brother A.T. Mitchell, formed Man Up following the tragic death of an 8-year-old to Sod Hill in 2003. It was their way of ending the cycle of gun violence in East New York. Two years later, the organization officially formed as a not-for-profit. They later became part of the New York City Crisis Management System's Cure Violence Program, employing a public health model to address the issue of gun violence in communities. The work of violence interrupters like Man Up is to mediate conflicts and to reach residents who have a high risk of committing gun violence, as well as those who have been impacted by it. You'll recognize this voice from our previous episode. It's Antonio Fernandez, a.k.a. King Tone, speaking at a 2017 conference addressing the criminalization of black and brown youth. Fernandez is also a notable violence interrupter. He explains more. In, in the prison, so we've been now two, Grove Grau's been in the two facilities in D.C. for two years. And uh, I just want to show you a picture. One day I walked in with him and I brought Judge Pat Pratt, who teaches at Rutgers University, the first sitting black Dominican judge that sat in Newark courtroom who accepted me in. We brought a guest, but I didn't know something. So I brought her to New Beginnings. You know how you bring a visitor to see the good work we're doing? And we walked in the gym. The warden had a roller skating ring going on with the girls roller skating with the kids with roller skates on. And I was like, yo, I didn't plan this shit. They're like, this is really happening in here. And she started crying. Because when you open the cell, one wall is a chalkboard. So when they're at night, they'll write their ideas. No kid is allowed to do more than two hours locked down, be it come hell or high water. We got Mary Angelo's school. We turned it to a campus. We empowered the love. You go in, they got target blankets in their cell. We buy their stuff where we buy our children's stuff and new beginnings. We love them infinitely like we love our own. So I'm saying the great attack ain't what we're saying. is us being consistent, doing what we said we we're going to do for them, and offer them the opportunity not to become like us, but to have a choice to become who you want. The greatest, the greatest credible messenger is not because Muslims saved me or Christianity or the kings, we want you to find your salvation through your mind, through your creativeness, through yourself, because you deserve that opportunity as a kid, because everybody's supposed to have that right in America. Here's another violence interrupter at the same conference chiming in. It's Norman Brown, part of the Credible Messenger Initiative in D.C. Me and Tone met in one of our youth facilities in Washington, D.C. We're currently funded by DYRS, which is the Department of Youth Rehabilitative Services, ran by Director Clinton Lacey in Washington, D.C., and under Grow Up, Grow Out, which is Tone, is the founder of the organization. I was invited to an event that DYRS runs called the Covenant of Peace. The Covenant of Peace is a, is a program in which we are fortunate enough under Director Lacey to go inside of our communities and we spend the night inside of the community, inside of the institutions for three days, three nights. I know I got out, I was only out maybe about nine months. I met Tone and I was invited to spend the night in jail again. 
So being a man of who I am and a man of dignity, I said to myself, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to get involved the moment I touch down, if I can. And when I got involved, Tone said, man, look, would you like to come and work with me? I have no money, folks. <laughs> he ain't have no money, <laughs> but he has some connections, and that is money. Because monetary value is not always the key. It's to be in the presence of people with dignity, people of principle, and people whose word is their bond. That is the kind of people who we should surround ourselves with because if you don't surround yourself with those type of people of principle, you will find yourself when the going get tough, they disappear on you. So when Tone raised that to me, and I had to go back home and, and share with my family, uh, you know, they want me to stay overnight in a detention center again. Of course, my sister and my lady said, are you out of your damn mind? I said, I said, no, because when I was in the gymnasium and I saw these young brothers and sisters, because one of the institutions, though, if not both of them, are co-ed. And we in a circle, and, and when we in a circle and we exchanging information with the young juveniles that are in there and all of the horror stories that you hear coming from them, and the love that you have for your people and his struggle, how could you say no? So I told Tone, I said, yeah, man, I'm going to spend a night. And I'm going to work with you. And what he did, he went in his pocket, didn't have much money, but he gave me what he had. So, of course, we spent the night. I'm laying on a bunk again. I'm out of my mind but I'm in love with the struggle. So being in love with the struggle superseded what I was currently doing. So after a while, I forgot where I was at because after you've done so much time, you easily adjust back to what you just finished doing. So in the process of doing all that, me because and Tone, we, we go in right to the institutions, undergrow up, grow so out, but at the same why? time we're incredible messages. The, messages. the police came in to testify that the reason they do this is because of gun violence. And who is working to change to gun violence through a public health approach right now? Who is? You all are. You are. You all are the alternative, the way to go, what should be supported. Let's take a moment here, because the next voice you're about to hear is from a part of our community that's often demonized as not knowing enough, or doing enough, or forgetting their past. The youth. Now, there are countless youth-driven initiatives to end gun violence and crime in vulnerable neighborhoods. Damiante Wallace from Our Story Shy, based in Chicago, is just one of the many youth advocates working to make that change. Her existence flies in the face of uninformed attractors who often scapegoat young black and brown teens through apologist justifications for predatory policing. In other words, 
Look at the gangs, young people's these days. They're different. They're super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. This is a speech given by none other than Hillary Clinton in 1996 at Keene State College. And it's about, you guessed it, super predators. Let's have a listen in and see if you can identify some of the fear-mongering and tactics used for the justification of over-policing in black and brown communities. He promised 100,000 police. We're moving in that direction, but we can see it already makes a difference because if we have more police interacting with people, having them on the streets, we can prevent crimes. We can prevent petty crimes from turning into something worse. But we also have to have an organized effort against gangs. Just as in a previous generation, we had an organized effort against the mob. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. Anyway, let's have a listen to what Damiante has to say. My name is Damiante Wallace. I'm a 17-year-old artist and activist, so I'm I'm young, right? Um, <laughs> so I'm from Chicago, and some of the work that I do is like with Black Lives Matter Chicago. Um, we have a youth organization, Our Story Shy, and um, we did a radio show for a while. Uh, it was for youth. We were just talking about Chicago and the climate of Chicago and how art affects us and how activism affects us. And we're coining this term, um, artivism, that we're using our art as a platform for our activism. Um, we often find that times, um, because black and brown youth, people aren't gonna listen to us unless we're up there rapping or singing or doing a poem or dancing or if we're like putting on a show for them. So we're kind of using that as a sense of saying like, I'll put on a show for you and you're gonna listen to what I have to say because we, we do have things to say. Um, currently I'm working with uh, Good Kids Mad City, which is who my sweatshirt says if y'all have been reading this. Um, and that is a collective between Chicago and Baltimore. We uh, found that after the park, after the things went down with Parkland and the shooting, um, essentially a bunch of uh, privileged white teenagers were getting this platform that we had been asking for for years and um, we needed to do something about it. That was our opportunity, that was our moment because they were, they were essentially offering us the space to say that, um, to tell our story and to tell our piece. So um, that, that was our opportunity and that was what we decided to do. We wanted to highlight all of the things that have been going on in our cities, the intercommunal violence. We wanted to highlight the police violence. We wanted to be able to show everybody what our cities were actually looking like and um, how we can't normalize our trauma and the trauma that we experience every day versus the trauma that um, these kids are experiencing once in a school shooting. <coughs> And it wasn't to invalidate their trauma. It wasn't to say that your trauma isn't real. It was to say that our trauma is too. And um, on this whole topic of like empowering youth and being able to say that like youth are the forefront, we have to give them that position of power. We have to like say that you are powerful and we have to put them in these positions where responsibility is on their shoulders because that's the only way to learn. Um, for these past three or four years, um, I've been doing activism and I've had 
I've been lucky enough to have mentors who are putting me in positions of power to be able to talk in front of y'all and to be able to say like, okay, this is who I am, this is how young I am, and no matter where I am, to be able to stand in my position and say that like, this is, this is where I am, you know? So over, you know, these past couple months with Good Kids Mad City, we've been able to create mission statements, we've been able to create our vision, we're able to have these overall goals that we want and need, and I'll get that to y'all in a little bit. Um, so right now in Chicago, we're working toward a No Cop Academy, and essentially what the Cop Academy is, is Rahm Emanuel, y'all know about the Goofy, yes. Um, so he's decided, he's made this decision, um, I don't know where he pulled it from, but he wants to build a $95 million police academy on the west side of Chicago, and um, so the rumors that are going around, you know, it's gonna have a pool, you know, it's gonna be highly equipped with all the fun stuff, and we believe that the $95 million needs to go back into our communities. He um, closed schools, he's closing schools consistently on like very high rates, and putting kids out on the street, and then building this cop academy to where he's gonna, I guess, train cops to now kill the kids who aren't in school because, you know, school to prison pipeline, that's essentially what he's uh, promoting in that sense. And so the work that we're doing is um, we've shut down City Hall um, a couple weeks ago over CPS's spring break. And um, we went in there to, uh, to shut it down. That was the goal. Um, we went in there, we, we listened to a few people speak, and then we had a mic check. We had police officers escorting us out of the room where Rom was, and um, we held space in the basement. Um, we had a die-in where we had tombstones of all of the community centers that he's closed, all of the schools and all of the youth that have died in the city of Chicago. We had tombstones and we all made circles around the tombstones. Um, going into detail about that, police officers weren't letting us get on the elevator to go back upstairs. They weren't letting us use the bathroom. They weren't letting us eat. Um, they weren't letting people bring us uh, food or water. We had to go outside to eat if we needed to. Um, we had to go outside to use the bathroom. We had to be able to leave and come back in. Um, they were physically moving children who were sitting on the floor. Um, they were up on our backs with their knees, like literally on our backs as we were in our circle. And um, that, for me, that was the moment I was like, I gotta keep doing this. Like, I don't know, I don't care. I don't care, like y'all are, y'all are, there's so much energy that they were putting there and we were literally just sitting there. We were playing games. Like we played Zip Zap Zop and we like play, we were like, you know, Mickey Mouse with the house. Like we weren't, we weren't being rude or disrespectful. We wanted them to understand that we're traumatized. There's so much going on in Chicago and other cities as well, but there's so much going on to where we're seeing shootings daily. Like this isn't a thing of once in a school, like we feel safe at school. And that's the problem, like, now we're wondering if we can still feel safe at school because we can't feel safe outside. And we can't feel safe in our homes because who knows what's gonna happen. There have been kids killed because a bullet has gone through their window. Like, where are we safe? So we need to demand the space to be safe. Um, going back to the $95 million, because I feel like that's so goofy, um, we don't have it. Let's just say that. We don't have the $95 million, and it hasn't even gone to the Finance Committee of City Council yet, but people feel like police officers have such a hard job that them killing black and brown youth is something that just comes with it, that just comes with the job. Sitting in there and listening to them, we heard a lot of people say like, 
you know, we want to praise the police officers because they have such a hard job and they have to do this every day. And it's very difficult to hear that because my life is on the line because you have such a hard job. If it's that hard to not kill somebody, I don't, I don't know what this world is becoming at that point. If I, if I have to walk outside and endure so much, if I have to endure somebody yelling at me or catcalling or anything like that and not kill them, you can do it as well. There's, there's too much going on to the point of, and also on the like race topic of it all, um, in a different city, and I can't recall it right now, there was a white judge who has never convicted a black police officer. No, um, let, me, uh, let me twist that, I'm sorry. There's a white judge who has never convicted a white police officer of killing a black person. But when a black police officer killed a white woman in one instance, he was very quick to send the officer to jail. To say that, oh, this, he has to go to jail, this is a murder, like, oh my gosh, how could you do this? Why, why would you even do that? And it was in almost the exact same situations as the black, black men and women who, have, who were being killed. So it's very difficult to watch um, essentially myself die over and over and over again because it's not like they're not my age. It's not like there's somebody who's far off or somebody who's in different places. This is, these are people who are around me. These are people who look like me. There's people who are my age who are doing the same work as me. And being, being 17, it's just really trying to find my place and being almost terrified for my life but still willing to put it on the line. Because walking outside every day is almost being revolutionary now. As being, as being a person of color. Because they can kill you for anything. Like, I can't even hold my phone anymore. I can't. <laughs> I'm scared to, like, I'll leave it in my purse, I'll put it in my pocket. Like, there are so many things, habits, that we're starting to develop. And because death is so close, like, it's so close, it's, it's touchable. Like, I can't, I can't think of a day, I can't find the future. It's very hard, like, who knows if I'll make it out of high school. And that's the thing, I'm a junior. I'm a junior, this summer, summer's coming up. Summer's coming up. Like, that's so real in Chicago, that's so real everywhere that it's hot outside. Who knows how many deaths. We had 13 shootings last weekend. So the, the, amount, of, the amount of hate that's coming from the, from the police officers, the amount of intercommunal violence, we're asking for resources. We're asking for our community centers to be reopened. We're asking for our schools to be reopened. We're asking for, to give the students a place we just need a place to be. That's it. That's all we're asking for. We're not, thank you, safe spaces. We're not asking for, we're not asking for much besides a place to be in a space to like hold ourselves and smile and be happy with each other, you know? So I'm going to read you guys Good Kids Mad City's mission statement. Um, no, I don't have it memorized. Don't judge me though. Um, so our mission statement is to prevent gun violence in underdeserved communities by organizing young people to advocate and lobby for progressive legislation that contributes to community revitalization, restorative justice, and reducing youth recidivism and incarceration, while simultaneously giving direct support to teens in neighborhoods that have suffered from gun violence by hosting healing circles, peace walks, honoring victims, block parties, and peer-mediated conflict resolution. Um, earlier, you touched on a piece about teachers. Um, Teachers do need to understand what black and brown youth are going, to, going through. Um, the school I go to, 
Uh, I go to Chicago High School for the Arts. If you heard of it, you probably haven't. Um, and we just implemented peer mediation to where now there's a step before suspension because the work that I've been doing and the work that the other students have been doing is trying to reduce the school to prison pipeline. Um, if a student skips class, you can't suspend them. Like, you can't make them miss more class because they skipped one class. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That just, you're essentially telling them, oh, you have to be outside now. The police have to come and get you. Like, there's, there are only so many options when you suspend a child. If, if the parent doesn't care, it depends on what their home life is. They're sitting at home probably having fun because they didn't tell their mom they got suspended. It's not a signature anymore. It's you get suspended and you leave. They, they, they call home and the mom's at work doesn't pick up. Then what do you do? Like, there are, there are only so many options. There are only so many things that you can do. So with peer mediation, we're trying to reduce the school to prison pipeline. We're trying to find new ways and new options to be able to re resolve the conflict in schools. Um, Teachers have this way of like not wanting to connect on the level of activism and on the level of social justice and on the level of um, I'm traumatized when I walk into your classroom, so I'm sorry if I'm having a bad day. Um, people for living. A woman was napping. She, I know y'all heard about it, come on. She was napping at Yale. Come on, please, please. All we're asking for is a chance, and that's, that's, what, that's why I'm here, and that's what I'm here to advocate for, is that chance that we need as black and brown youth, as people of color in general, like, we need that chance, and we need that moment, just a moment. It's just a moment to have that realization, to be able to understand, like, we will reduce intercommunal violence with the trauma centers. We'll be able to have way more resources if we had a community center near us. I live, I live in Woodlawn, and, uh, UFC just opened a trauma center, and that's the closest one to me now. But before it was like 79th, I was on 62nd. <laughs> like, if I'm having an emotional breakdown, you really think I'm gonna get on the bus to 79th to go talk to those people, and I'm gonna have an emotional breakdown on the bus? That uh, it, it doesn't work like that. Not for me, at least. I don't know. Maybe people can hold theirs off for that 45-minute bus ride or whatever, and y'all can. I don't know. But I know youth who are literally sitting at home trying to normalize their pain because they have nowhere to go. Like you can't go to school, you can't talk to your parents. There's so much going on in uh, households of people of color because we have to normalize our pain because of how much we've already been through. Like there's years and years and years and years of blood trauma that we already have, plus the trauma that's being stacked on top of us every day and we don't have a place to talk about it. We are, we, that's all we need is a place to talk about it. We need. Oh, first, if you're trying to give us a place to talk about it, people of color, don't 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 send in therapists who can't connect with us, because that's going to be problematic as well. And we're gonna have a whole another panel, I promise. So, um, that's my piece, at least I think. So. <laughs> Here's another familiar voice if you've heard the first episode of this podcast series on the gang database called City Hall. Definitely listen to it if you haven't already. Taylon's story is powerful and it speaks to the impact of violence interrupters on neighborhoods, along with the motivation many of them bring to this space. Anyway, here he is in the same conference in 2017. Um, I want to start off by saying ABC, and I want y'all to, to repeat that after me. ABC. ABC. A little louder. ABC. ABC. Because right here at this table is ABC. Adversity builds character. That's my mantra. 
adversity builds character. And I'm gonna go into how adverse my life's been. Um, I've been through seven trials in my lifetime. Three of them trials was in the last seven years, pertaining to my children. Four of them trials were me, because I wouldn't do what the police wanted me to do. They wanted me to say that I know this guy. They wanted me to say, they wanted me to be an informant. So I sat at that table for four trials. Four trials, you know, with first two trials were in 1990. Um, police came and got me, you know, over something that went on during 87 and said, you know these guys, right? You've been around these guys. We've been watching you around these guys. Tell me where these guys is at. I don't know what you're talking about. That's how I was raised and went through two trials. First trial, they knew I had nothing to do with what happened. They knew that I wasn't even in the vicinity. I worked, I had gotten in some trouble in 87 with a couple of folks out Jamaica, Queens. <coughs> um, it was during the, the, the crack era. And all this stuff is documented. All this stuff is documented in a piece called My Daughter's Death by Jennifer Gunnerman. Jennifer Gunnerman happens to be the author that broke the Khalid Browder story. She actually walked with me for a whole year. It was a 26 long page piece that she had to cut down to 12 pages. And the reason why she had to cut it down to 12 pages because her editor didn't want to go at NYPD, you know, and didn't want to bring up things that happened during that time. Um, they asked me about a murder, a homicide. I didn't know nothing about the homicide. In 87, when I got locked up and I got five years probation for being a lookout for a guy that was selling crack on the corner, they wanted me to tell on some guys and say that I knew what these guys were doing. And they came to me and said, if you don't tell on these individuals, we got a, we got a, a dope fiend, crackhead witness in the back that'll say that you killed this man in this park. I didn't believe it. I said, man, I, my family had gotten me a city job. I was working up in a Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx. I knew I was at work that day. Don't you know, I laid up two and a half years on Rikers Island from 1990 into two, well, two years in Rikers Island from 1990 to 1992 fighting that case. The first trial I went to, I got a hung jury, 10-2 to acquit. Lawyer was like, well, listen, maybe we, he, he won't retry. They waited a little while. Police officers came to Rikers Island. At that time, I was in HDM, the House of Dangerous Men, um, and said to me, are you ready to tell yet? I had been in the box. You ready to tell yet? I'm like, man, what you talking about? I'm going to take this back to trial because I know I didn't do anything. The next time I went back to trial, I had another hung jury. This time, 10-2 to acquit. What you think that happened? Police came back and said, listen, you still not ready to tell yet? No, I'm not ready to tell yet. My lawyer came to me and said, listen, man, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what they think you know, but you need to take a plea. I said, take a plea? What you talking about, take a plea? Well, I know one thing. This judge you have, if you go a third time and they trying to take you back a third time, they're going to fry you. So we're going to come up with this alpha plea. You're not going to, I'm like, man, I'm not going to say I did anything. I'm not going to say I did anything wrong. Well, we, you can, would you take an Alfred plea? I said, well, what's an Alfred plea? An Alfred plea 
is you don't admit, allocate to no guilt. You just take a plea, you do something like time served or whatever, or a couple of months, and you know you home. Me being so stressed out, me not knowing no better, I said, give me the plea. But give me the plea. I got to get out of here. I left out of there. A few years later, same two officers, different precinct, come back. Somebody got assaulted with a firearm. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't a choir boy then, you know. So they came back and got me. Listen, we got a, we got a witness that said, you shot him. I said, shot him? What you talking about? <laughs> Yo, you shot him. I ain't say nothing else, you know. Then threw a, a, a robbery charge on me, you know. Oh, yeah, and you robbed this guy. I said, man, I always was one to say, yo, I ain't do nothing wrong. Let's go. Let's take it to trial. Took it to trial. Now, the description of the robbery was a guy six foot tall with dreads. It was two guys, one six foot tall with dreads, the other guy was six foot tall with a crew cut. My first bid on staying on Rikers Island two years, running through all them different buildings, I lost my, I had to start getting a receding hairline. So I wanted to know which guy I was. Was I the guy with the dreads or was I the guy with, with, with the crew cut? Um, I ended up not being any of them because I got acquitted on that case. The second case, the guy that was from the neighborhood that I kept telling the lawyer, I know this guy. This guy's a known drunk. He's a known alcoholic. He pops pills. He does this. He does that. Lawyers be like, oh, we got to go through the process. You know, went through the process. I damn, I damn near had to grab his tie and shake him and say, go get the toxicology report. Because I started going to the law library. I had a big brother named Derek Hamilton, you know, Bush. That, that kept me in the law library, because he said, you don't belong here. You got to get back out there. You don't belong here. Um, we ended up getting a toxicology report. The guy's alcohol level was double, double of what the legal level of being drunk was supposed to be. So I got acquitted on that case. I say all of that to say, if I'm here speaking to you, I'm here speaking to you for a reason. And that's just four trials. That's just four trials. And I had my big brother, Bush, Top, and a lot of Red Bug, and they was like, yo, man, we better not see you back in here. You go back out there, and you tell the young brothers and sisters what it is to be in here. See, I'm getting into the, what a credible messenger is about. A credible messenger is about your life. A credible messenger is about your experiences. So I went on out after that. I mean, I met my daughter's mother in prison. She stayed with me for the duration of the 1990 bed. She sat with me through all four trials. We ended up having a daughter when I came home. Um, that daughter, we named her. She came out looking like a wet duck, but we couldn't call her duck because duck is not really, you know, that, that wasn't cute. But I used to eat a lot of chicken. I used to eat chicken cacciatore, chicken cutlet, <laughs> you know, fried chicken, chicken wings, anything with chicken in it, I ate it. So we ended up nicknaming her Chicken. When she turned three years old, 
she picked up a basketball. And she used to dribble this ball through the house, dribble this ball through, bounce the ball, bounce the ball. I'm like, what are you bouncing the ball for? Mother used to be like, oh, the ball is for boys. That's not for, that's not for little girls. That's for boys. What are you doing? She had just had another baby. My son, Taylor Jr., in which I called him Bam Bam because he used to run his walker up, up against the wall, back and forth, back and forth. And I had to pay for like three different walkers. Mind you, I had a felony, so it was hard to get a job back then because you didn't have that check where, you know, they, 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 they didn't penalize you for getting, they, they penalized you back then for, get, to, to, you know, for having a felony. So I had to do everything I could. Man. You know, I, luckily I had an uncle that was in construction and taught me how to read blueprints and taught me different things because I've never been no dummy. I just made wrong choices. And I always talk, talk to my young people about their choices. But um, my daughter ended up taking that basketball and ended up becoming 16 in the nation at her position. She ended up being in the top 100 of the country, at, 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 at players in the country. Uh, her junior year, she had a, an injury, ACL injury. Most young ladies that play basketball or volleyball, they, they acquire these injuries. So she had an ACL injury in her junior year. But her senior year came and she was ranked 16 in the nation. 16 in the nation. She played one game going into her senior year. She scored 35 points, one game. I remember watching her play against people out of pros now. And I'm gonna call him out, Kyle Anderson. He plays for the San Antonio Spurs. I watched her drop 35 on him. So she was a phenom. Um, they had moved from Queensbridge to Harlem, you know, looking for a better life or looking to do some things different. Me and her mother were going through things. Queensbridge was my home. My family has been out in Queensbridge since the 50s. You know, my father's been in Marcy since the 50s. And my father had cousins in Queensbridge, first cousins, and they, I was conceived in the bridge. So that was my birthplace. So me and her mother was going through things and it was kind of hard for her and I understood because I had cousins there that get put there, you know, had the opinion. So she wanted to move to Harlem. And I don't fault her for that. She gets to Harlem. We don't understand what's going on in Harlem. Because they're, they're, you know, come to find out later on, there's a 42-year beef between two housing developments across the street from each other. And 125th Street is the dividing line. I don't know. I'm nursing my daughter to health. Remember, back to health. Remember, I said she had a blown ACL. So that whole year, I'm nursing my daughter back to health. And I know, you know, I'm still trying to deal with my son, but my son is a little out there, you know? And it's hard, you know, people say, oh, well, you should have some balance, but when one of your children is sick, don't you cater to that child a little bit more than you might pay attention to the other one because she's sick, something's wrong. My son got, had friends in the neighborhood. I'm not gonna say that he didn't uh, 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 follow the crowd. I mean, when you're 14, they got there when they were 14 and 12. When you're 14 and 12 and you move to a new neighborhood, it's hard reestablishing yourself. Very hard to reestablish yourself. So he ended up 
hanging out with the guys from his building. The guys from his building had a little crew that they were with. And it's funny, because the police won't tell you they crew started out as a basketball team. The police won't tell you that they crew started out not to join the gang. They all came together not to be gang members. And they called themselves Three Stacks. Um, three Stacks had a little beef or animosity with the young men across 125th Street, Make It Happen Boys, from Manhattanville. And Manhattanville teamed up with some individuals from Manhattan Avenue. So now you got Manhattanville, Manhattan Avenue, two Manhattans against the Grant Boys, which is called Three Stacks. These young men were allowed to go back and forth for, four, for two years before my daughter was killed. Yeah, because I'm getting to that point. My daughter was murdered. She was chased into a building by some young men that were beat up that night. And the night that they were beat up, it was a thousand young people in the street. I, I'm not going to exaggerate. I'll say a hundred. Hundred to 150 young people in the street. On 125th Street, a main artery in Harlem. Police ain't doing anything but watch them. Surveil them. Watch them go back and forth, back and forth. I had just got out of a car accident. My daughter's birthday just passed. She would have been 25 on, on May 4th. But I still remember the day vividly because I was in a car accident and it was her 18th birthday and she, I always told her her 18th birthday would be special. So she was like, Dad, I'm worried about you. I signed myself out of the hospital to go lay on my mother's couch and wait for her to come so I could give her some money for her 18th birthday. Yeah, I remember it well. Well, any back, back to what I was saying, both, both, both housing developments is fighting back and forth, fighting back and forth. They have been fighting back and forth. There had been things going on. And the DAs, the police department, they didn't think that intervening was the answer. They thought surveilling them and coming up with these whack, and I say whack, security, um, conspiracy statues on young people that are 11, 12, 13. My, four, my, my son was 15 at the time. So they watched these young men all the way up to, not even when my daughter was killed. They watched from the Viper Room. You know, when I found, when I went through one of the three other trials I'm gonna tell you about. The Viper Room, they watched as the young man came downstairs with the firearm and with another young man, flashed the firearm on some young people that was outside that building, walked all the way across the street, watched them walk across the street, chased my daughter and five of her friends, four of my son's friends into a building. My son got on the elevator, they got split up. You could see everything on the camera. This is what surveillance does. It, it, sometimes it backfires. You can see everything on the camera. They chase my, they, they, my, they, my, my daughter runs up the stairs. They try to close the door, thinking that the door would lock, but you know, I laugh because we know how night is. Doors don't lock. Thinking that the door would lock, she runs up the stairs. Part I left out, she, her being a great basketball player, she also had chronic asthma. 
So it was times that she get on the court and she played all over the country. She get on the court and leave everything out on the court and then we'd be in the hospital for two or three days nursing her back to health because basketball was her passion. Some young people, some young ladies sew, some young ladies cook, she played basketball and that was her thing. So she caught an asthma attack as she was running up the stairs and stopped on the fourth floor. The camera shows the two individuals popped the door open because the door was, something must have been wrong with the door. They closed it. They thought they were safe. They thought they were in their building and safe. She caught an asthma attack on the fourth floor. They came upstairs, caught her on the fourth floor, shot her once in her wrist. The one my daughter, she was putting her hand up, shot her once in her hip and stood over her and shot her in the chest. Murdered her. I visit the spot every year. Every year I go and visit that spot. But I'm going back to adversity builds character. At a wake, it was unbelievable. You would have thought Biggie Smalls was in there, Little Wayne was in there at a wake. I couldn't believe how many people came out to support her. Couldn't believe how many people came out to support us and to send her off. I sat there, I was telling people, move back. People were looking at me like, move back, where we gonna move to? Walk to the corner, OG. I walked to the corner, the line was wrapped around the corner. Wrapped around the corner. Dignitaries came out. People from other states came out. Coaches from all over came out. City Hall came out. Board of, Board of Education came out. Everybody that you could think of came out. Uh, so many people came out the next day, we said we, wasn't going, we couldn't have an open funeral. We closed the doors at 10.30. We told everybody, you better get here by 10.30 because there's no way in the world I'm paying some extra money to keep these doors open again. We had to, all right. we had to keep that door open. We had to keep the door open until 11 o'clock. When I seen all them young people and I seen their pain, I had two choices. The first choice was to take maybe out of 4,000 of them, and I'm being as real as I can be, take 1,500 of them and go burn both of them housing developments down to the ground. And there was people that was there that was willing to do it. There was people that was there that was really willing to tear that, that place up. The day of her funeral, I felt something different. And it's documented, so you could see it. The day of her funeral, out in Queensbridge, I seen 400 young people came out and did a vigil and, and, and did a memorial and I, 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 something changed in me. I said, hold up, man. What am I doing? What am I thinking about? I had to sit there and say, yo, I sat and said things I never thought I would say. At that, at that, at that memorial, or whatever you want to call it after a burial. I said, if, if my daughter's death can save 20,000. 40,000, maybe 60,000 young people, so be it. Mm. And I didn't even know what I was saying. I didn't even know what I'm saying. I got to speed up because I know time constraints. Um, what, I ended, what ended up happening is, you know, I went through the two trials with my daughter. Two of the young men got convicted. I saw the pain in the mother's face. I even reached across the aisle, reached across the aisle, and told that mother that we're going to do something different. We're going to change the dynamic of what's going on. We came up with an idea. I came up with an idea, so to speak, both sides of the gun. Not knowing one day that I would be the other side of the gun. Because right now, I'm the other side of the gun. 
The media hyped up a war, a street war between two young individuals, back between two groups. They hyped it up, 19 shootings, this, that, and the third. Yo, every time I hit that block on 125th Street, between, old, between Broadway and Morningside, every time I walked through that, 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 that area, I didn't hear a gunshot. I, I brought them young people together more than once on a neutral block called Old Broadway. But the police said, no, nah, these they a problem. They are an issue. We said, no, nah, we need resources for these young men. All we need to do is, is deal with their trauma and deal with the hurt and the pain. They lost their sister. But they didn't want to do that. What they, what they chose to be the answer was a raid. They raided Manhattanville and Grant. They locked up 103, and indicted 103 young individuals. At that time, it was the largest gang raid in the city. My son was, was, was locked up on other petty charges because all his co-defendants on these charges, most of them, got misdemeanors. And I'm going to tell you what my son got. They got misdemeanors. Uh, I became a very outspoken individual because they wanted to say that this whole thing, this raid was about my daughter and the killers of my daughter. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. The two young men that, got, that killed my daughter is doing 25 to life. How is this whole thing about my daughter? So I know a lot of that had bearing on what happened with my son. And I say that openly. But anyway, after we, did, we couldn't get the help that we needed, and they raided the young individuals, and my son got swooped up in a conspiracy statue. I tried to do some work up in Harlem, you know, but it was a lot of politics, so I had to leave something there for people to do and move on to something else, and that's when I moved on to Queensbridge. I went back home. I went back home to prove a point in the biggest housing development in the nation, Northern Hemisphere, to prove a point that we could go back there with a little bit of resources. Because when I was in Manhattan, between Manhattanville and Grand, since they wanted to do a raid, the resources was our shoelaces and bubble gum. Lady came, it, 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 we, we wasn't getting no type of resources. An individual came and gave, you know, because I started a foundation, An individual came and tried to give us money to open up a crisis center and, you know, and we used the neutral block to try to curtail and have these meetings with the young men. But like I said, they wanted a raid. So I went back to Queensbridge. I went back to Queensbridge and what people won't tell you, they'll tell you about the documented stuff that, 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 that when the mayor's office interjected its Cure Violence site, which I have nothing against Cure Violence because I'm a leader of Cure Violence and I love my frontline soldiers and I love all my people that's out there doing that work. But I understand the politics too because I was kicked out of Manhattan due to politics. You know, there was six months before that cure violence start, site started in Queensbridge. Six months without no shootings, no murders. And then they infused the site. I knew what they was doing. And asked me to be part of the site. Hey, you, you, we need you to do uh, 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 the panels, the hiring panels. We need you to do this. But I understood what was going on. It was the politics. It's okay. Because I always put people before politics. And people before pop, pro property. A lot of that up in West Harlem was about property. Um, we ended up going out into, into Queensbridge, and this is where ABC come in. 
Adversity builds character. It was six of us. Six of us that hit the ground in the biggest housing development in the country. And from that six months that we had peace, we got a whole year plus of no shootings at all and almost two years of no murders. Now you tell me adversity don't build character. We were able to go in there and we were able to get the community to buy in because you need the community behind you if you're going to do something big. You need the community to understand that you love them. You need the community to understand that you're there for them. And they brought in. And the numbers outweighed the politics in the beginning because we were able to do the things we needed to do. We were able to, uh, 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 you know, bring some squash a lot of the beefs. And there was a lot of love in the community. Um, politics struck again because I had to resign from 696, unfortunately. But now I, everything is full circle, so I'm back in Harlem. Um, the mayor's office, I guess they recognized and, you know, rightfully so, recognized my work, gave me a little grant in Harlem to, to well, a little contract in Harlem to start doing the same thing that I've done in 696. But I think the moral of my story is, is that to reach these young people, you got to show them that you've been through something. To reach these young people, you got to show them that you're pure ABC. And ABC don't have to be my story. People could have went through taking care of their mother and father when both of them were sick and, 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 and fending for their, for their siblings, you know? But you have to have a story that's tangible, something that they can hold on to, something that they can touch, something that they can relate to. Because if you don't have that, you don't have, you don't have them. And a lot of these great initiatives don't have them because they don't have the outreach. They don't have the people that's going to go out there and say, I love you, even though you're, you, you're walking around with the same, same, same shoes and sneakers on or the same pants on every day. See, my success comes through love. And it comes through love through all my pain. And it's a lot of pain. Because subsequently, I didn't get back to my son and how I'm both sides of the gun. My son is doing 50 years right now. 50 years on a murder and on conspiracy charges that have no evidence, no DNA evidence. They had no gun. At the time of the murder, the police picked him up and let him go. All over, people being wrapped up in a conspiracy and the police being able to say, yo, we're going to give you 20, 20 years, 30 years if you don't say that this man did it. Don't it sound familiar? That's why adversity builds character. And my son is in there right now, till this day, smiling, saying, Pop, I already know. You already taught me. You already prepared me. You already gave me the five Ps. Proper preparation prevents poor performances. I'm going to be fine. You just keep doing what you're doing. You keep exposing things for what they are. You keep empowering my, 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 my friends and my peers so they're not sitting in this cell next to me. You know? But um, I know we under time restraints. Um, I'm just glad that y'all let me give you a piece of my story because it goes a little deeper. I'm sorry I couldn't use the mic as I'm just, you know, I get zoned out when I start talking about it. But please keep my son in prayer. Keep the people on this panel in prayer. 
as I'm going to keep you in prayer, especially if you're one of, one of us, a freedom fighter, a frontline soldier, you know, and a game changer. And with that, I say good afternoon and peace. Is violence occurring, right? Are people hurting other people in our communities? Yes, I know it. At the same time, do we agree that a full hammer should be dropped over this entire community so that they are destroyed and depleted? No. Side note, law enforcement and community organizers often refer to violence interrupters as credible messengers. These are men and women returning to their communities to give back after being impacted by systems of oppression like gun violence. What makes you a credible messenger? A credible messenger is just not one who's been to jail. A credible messenger is just not one who has been through life and been up and down. That is a part of it. But being a credible messenger means now you have to establish yourself in your life on principles of goodness, on principles of love, on principles of involvement. And once I began to understand that everybody is not cut out for this work, but everybody is cut out for some work, it's just that you are not and everybody is not cut out to be an example in his struggle. Because what me and Tone was talking about on the train up here today, I discussed with him, I said, Tone, in order to be a credible messenger, man, this means that even in the process of struggling and broke, you still have to stick to the principles of what the struggle is all about. Because if you don't stick to the principles of what the struggle is all about, you must understand that this is the time when Pro knocks on your door and give you an offer that you can't refuse. And Pro, oftentimes in our Communities now begin now to look like you and I. And when it begins now to look like you and I, all you have to reflect back on is the fact that when I was sitting on trial for four and a half months in Washington, D.C., the people that were sitting on trial pointing at me was the same people who ate with me, slept with me, and I took care of their family. So see, if you don't involve yourself in the principles of right doing, you will find yourself compromising and tangled in the spider web. And if you know anything about nature, it only takes the spider when he gets you wrapped up in it three seconds before he comes and sucks the life out of you and they'll leave you there looking like you got life, but all the while you are a shell with all your insides taken out. So what Credible Messenger does, we go back now inside of the institutions and we begin to teach principles to the little brothers who never had a principle taught to them. Why? Because all they were on all their life was on the cycle of survival. So you got to try to find out how am I going to eat? What am I going to do? My mother's not here. What is a father? My mother's on crack. She's tricking. She got different men coming in and out the house. I have a little brother. He has to eat. What is this? This, that, this, that. And when you sit down and you understand that and you listen to some of these horror stories, you have to ask yourself how in the world did this little brother get this far? 
So as a credible messenger, now we go in, as Tone said, and we listen to the people first. Because when we go to the doctors, brothers and sisters, the doctor has to listen to what it is of our symptoms before he can begin now to give us the appropriate medicine to get us to heal. That is what we do as credible messengers. So in this process of understanding how to heal us, we have to first be willing to listen. Our love has to be stronger than our hate, and we have to be able to stand when no one else is willing to stand. Because in Washington, D.C., when we come home, not like other states, we are able to sit on juries again. We are able to vote again. So this is why in that city, we are called returning citizens because the moment we get out, the moment we are giving back all the things that we lost while we were incarcerated, we can vote while we're in DC jail. That is unique and that is what we need to work on throughout America is giving these type of rights back because when we go to jail, if you go to jail and use your time right, you come out much powerful than you went in. And that's what they are afraid of. So my name is Damianti Wallace. I'm a 17-year-old artist and activist. So I'm, I'm... Studies have shown that credible messengers and violence interruption groups like Man Up have dramatically reduced the number of violent and gang-related crimes in New York City. More of this. Yes. More centers. Can these centers be replicated everywhere in New York City, right? Okay. They can, but they're not. There's money for it. But why doesn't it come here? It's very interesting because it brings awareness. And as a life coach, I can use this information to deal with the young brothers and sisters that we work with in our neighborhood vocational course. It's important for our young people, even from babies in elementary school, to be aware of this very important issue. Because our job as an organization is to inform others. That's how the word gets spread out, and that's how we become more cautious about the things that we do in the street, about who we talk to, our surroundings of that sort. So just having this knowledge, you know, it, it'll help me just, you know, spread the word to them to let them know what's going on in our neighborhood. If you want to find out if you're on the database, submit a request. Follow the link below for more information. That's that's it for now. Uh, thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for chilling and and learning with me and taking this journey. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe. Uh, please rate this podcast. It actually means a lot. It helps this podcast get discovered by more and more people. Um, and if you want to help me do more and more of this, and if you want to support me doing more of this work, uh, please go to donorbox.org. That's D O N. O-R-B-O-X dot O-R-G forward slash the nose blog. Donorbox.org forward slash nose blog. And make a donation. Anything can help. One dollar to twenty to a hundred. Doesn't matter. It helps keep the lights on. All right, that's it for now. See you next time on the nose blog. Always question and always explore. Peace.